0: Welcome, ghouls and goblins, to Stuff We've Seen. I'm your host, Jimmy Carlisle. And now, here he is, the man who in the early 90s had his own pet, Quetzalcoatl, the Prince of Darkness himself, bob,
1: How's it going, buddy? It's going good, and <laughs> I always have to try not to laugh during the intro, <laughs> but it, 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 I have a question now, which is, did Boris Karloff originate the halloween voice because it's no longer just like it's it's now it's a halloween voice that people do for like all sorts of different halloween things did it start with karloff was it vincent price was it uh yeah who started the halloween voice it's now a generic halloween voice it doesn't have to do with one character anymore
0: well um no i mean that's was Karloff's voice, I think he got it first when uh one of the Universal Monster movies, was it the Black Cat or he, he sounded like that. Yeah. <laughs> and then also in uh The Mummy.
1: Okay. See, I uh I'm not a big universal horror guy i i've seen maybe one or two of them i noticed they have them on criterion and i was thinking about watching them cuz they're horror movies my 10 year old could watch yeah cuz we all did attend that's our first introduction right but i've never been super I've, i know that they have like a massive cult following fan base uh that i'm not <laughs> that i'm not a part of i think it's a different generation like uh, ahead of us
0: i i know some oh, people oh okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, because, you know, when I was a kid, there was Frankenberry. Frankenberry, Frankenberry. Frankenberry
1: but I didn't Boo-berry, understand yeah.
0: that that was, yeah, I didn't understand that that was Boris Karloff, and that's why his voice
1: was like that. Oh, okay, yeah.
0: <laughs> that it was an imitation. No, um, Booberry was like, um, well, Peter Lorre, yes, Booberry.
1: Oh, it was the Peter Lorre voice, okay, yeah. Yes. Man, what a interesting actor he was. Hank Azaria... In the second night of the museum,
0: <laughs> Battle of Whatever, right. he was Kahumara or whatever. And he did this really weird voice with a lisp. And I think people who didn't know the world were like, what the hell is he doing? Well, he was doing a riff on Boris Karloff's character in The Mummy. Oh, Interesting. He- <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> I did not so, see the second night at the museum oh man you know you're missing out <laughs> but but I did uh I did pitch for the first one you did yes <laughs> it's a little history about uh, Teelzebub here. Yep. i I pitched for the first night at the museum it was called flashlight sleepover at the time and they said it's about some kids in a natural history museum it was that was the concept come in and pitch us a movie about that that's all they had. And so I went in and pitched uh, a movie and <laughs> and the producer says you know at the end of the pitch says I just love Michael Crichton's timeline don't you And it turned out it turned out that I had pitched Michael Crichton's timeline although I hadn't read the book and oh, didn't no. know anything about the story so he was testing you Yes, but I basically just stumbled upon a very similar concept. That must be brutal when you do yes. you know, I mean, that must happen in Hollywood all the time too, right? Yeah, it must happen all the time. And I, I, I had no idea what the plot of timeline was. I didn't. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, so they, they were testing me. So they were like, get out of here, kid. <laughs> get out of here. You just came in and pitched us Michael Creighton's last book. yeah exactly yeah (laughs) well and they did make a movie out of timeline so
0: with that like how long do you get like how many minutes are you in there pitching something that turned out to be a book
1: (laughs) well the whole meeting is about an hour but there's like 20 minutes of like do you want some water and (laughs) where are you from you know there's a whole getting to know you part where you just like bullshit for a while and then and then you give your pitch, which is probably 10 to 15 minutes. And then they don't want to be rude. <laughs> so there's another like 10 minutes of just, I don't know, just bullshitting about like, what movies do you like? Right. And have you read Michael Crichton? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of like, yeah, what there's a lot of talking about sort of seeing like if your taste in movies clicks, and testing people out too. like, have you seen it happened one night? And often it's like a movie that just came out that they are very excited about. And they're like, we want everything to be like, uh, the straight story or <laughs> we want to make a movie like being John Malkovich. Cause that came out the week before. Right. So, well, you know,
0: there's a really great movie, um, from 2006 and it's
1: called the plague. Oh man! Don't let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's oh, not get suddenly, into that. Suddenly, the conversation steers <laughs> to a new direction. People look it up. Um, hey, so we're going to talk horror this episode. That's all we're yeah, going to talk it's, about. It's horror. the month of scary movies, and we're we're just over halfway through the month. And I have decided I'm just watching horror this month, so I still have some to go. And me too. Uh, it doesn't stop just because we've done an episode. <laughs> exactly. We're sort of checking in at the midpoint on my horror binge, your horror binge too.
0: And and mind you, and I think we've talked about this in the show, I mean, horror is not my favorite genre. Um, it never really was, even though I was really into it I- in the early 80s.
1: <laughs> it was definitely my favorite g- genre when I was 15 for about a year. Yeah, and that was it. Yeah. Like I had a love affair with horror movies uh, really from like 80 to 85 so maybe five years okay mine may have been a little bit longer than a year also um and i did read fangoria and i love tom savini i think i may have told this story on the show before but when i was a little kid i was terrified of horror movies and blood and gore all that stuff like just gave me anxiety attacks and then uh i was at a party And I saw Dawn of the Dead and I loved it so much that I realized horror movies don't really scare me that much. And I went all in on horror and, and I also have to say that my uh, whole family makes fun of me because of how I pronounce the word horror. I say horror. We talked about this. You're yeah. losing your memory. We did this just in the last episode, we talked yeah, about Yeah, I know. Horror. Anyhow, oh, so uh, <laughs> I, I just, you know, disclaimer for listeners that I do say horror. You don't need to write us an email about it. <laughs> He's expecting a, a ton of <laughs> hate mail.
0: Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know if this was the reason why I, I, I liked horror. I think it was because it was the first rated R movie I got to see was The Shining, right? So that must have something to do with it. Right. Um, but then – Maybe later that year, uh, so I was out doing errands one night with my mom and sister, and we were at Osco Drug was the pharmacy, and my mom was off doing whatever errands she had to do, and I would go to the magazine section, and I'm looking for Mad Magazine, most likely, and I stumble across this picture of a just grotesque-looking zombie uh, on the cover And I was like, what is this? And there's Fangoria. And I was loved. And it was the first, I was like, I want to buy this magazine. And the, I was obsessed with this uh, image. I guess it must've been like 1981. And it was an image from uh, Lucio Fulci's Zombie. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was like 1980. And it's, Year, a couple of years later, I was actually got to see was paired up as a double feature at the drive-in, and I was so excited because I was going to get to see this <laughs> character. <laughs> this particular zombie, yeah. The movie is just terrible.
1: Yeah, it's um, awful.
0: And I was so disappointed. However, that, that just kicked in a love affair that I had with Vangoria Magazine every month. I couldn't wait to see the next issue when we'd go to Osco. I might even ask my mom, do you have any errands to run at Osco? We got to go so I can look at Fangoria. And eventually I got a subscription to Fangoria.
1: Yes, I had a subscription. And, uh, you know, like I said, I love Tom Savini. And I actually thought that like in horror films, that the special makeup effects person was as important as the director. He might be even more important, <laughs> um, and and you know so
0: again. Then this is why I think we're perfect to talk about uh, horror in the '80s. Uh, you know, w- one thing I now look forward to every year is to see what Criterion might be offering for the month of October, because two years ago they really did a solid with these 1970s horror movies. Yes. And I saw so many movies that I had never uh, seen before. And last year, I forget even what they did. They didn't do anything like that. So it was a little disappointing. But they came roaring back this year with a collection of 30 films from the 80s.
1: Yes, 80s horror. And uh, what's great about this is there were a bunch of films, even though that's the decade that I was most into horror films. uh, There were a bunch on on their list that I hadn't seen before. I'll go even one further. There was a bunch of films I had never even, I knew existed. That's <laughs> yes. what I loved about White it. White of it was the eye. White of the eye I'd never heard of before.
0: I never in a million years heard of that. I never heard of the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne. Uh, I'd never heard of Next of Kin. Um, I've never heard of Oh Strange Behavior.
1: Yeah, yeah
0: until recently i never heard of society only a couple years ago did i first hear about that
1: Uh, that's when i first heard of society too I, i it came up on some film list when i was googling around or something and uh i heard people talking about it and uh so i hadn't seen it which is kind of surprising because well what it didn't come out in the u.s until like 91 right I, maybe. I don't know. I mean, because at that point, that's when I was in college, and I wasn't really
0: focused on horror movies. If they came out in theaters at all, a lot of times they were just going to video, and so
1: I really didn't know. And I think that Society had come out in Europe, and it was actually like a critical hit in England.
0: Fascinating.
1: And then it, uh, th- they really got into the class c- criticism aspect and and satire of the movie uh in the british press and then it came to the u.s and everyone you know all the critics were saying this is just trash uh (laughs) and terrible and so i think it got a very small theatrical release in 91 even though it was uh, basically done in 89 and so by 91 yeah i wasn't watching a lot of horror if it had come out five years earlier uh, I would have loved this movie because it's really I think a high point in uh 80s special makeup effects yeah
0: well it would have been to me right up there with uh reanimator and stuff I yes mean, that was that so there was a time like my <laughs> my love affair with horror really started with uh theaters actual yeah. theatrical releases and then seeing things at the drive-in sometimes you know, a pretty decent horror movie coupled with some real crap that was just meant to be dumped in the drive-in. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then then my love affair and hatred of the video market was I now had exposure to a ton of films I wanted to see but probably came out before I could and or my parents weren't going to take me. Uh, right. Now I had access to it. But then I became sort of a weird snob that as it became late 80s, early 90s, and beyond – If a movie didn't get a release in theaters that I knew of and it just came out, I was like, oh, it can't be good enough to have been in the theater. It was just
1: direct to uh, to video. So, screw it. (laughs) Yeah. So, I worked at a video store in the 80s. You did? Yes. (laughs) We've talked about this. But I, I don't think I've talked about this, that my friend Steve was the buyer. Oh, so, okay. And so, we would get these catalogs every month. And it was, here's what's coming out on video, and how many copies do you want for your store? And it would say in the ads whether it had a theatrical release.
0: Oh, that's fascinating.
1: Yeah, because that was like, you know, well, we've already had some promotion for this movie. It's been theatrically released. And for some reason, I really remember very clearly the ad for Darlene Flugel in Freeway, I think it was called. And it said theatrical release, but it was like a movie I'd never heard of. And so I realized that, yes, they were getting, and it may have been like, uh, you know, in five cities or something. And so he would sometimes ask me to flip through the catalog and say if we should buy something or not. Uh, and so I, I I definitely, there were a few horror movies that went on that list. And you you know, when we just sort of just
0: kicked off this conversation, you'd mentioned the Makeup artist becoming something that was almost more important. Well, I would say for the kids and us, what I wanted to see in horror was – and that's how I got my parents to take me. And and most of the time, if it was the drive-ins, it was the family going. If it was the theater, it was my dad taking me because I think my mom would have been embarrassed, especially to have my younger sister there. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) But – It was weird is that they wanted to, I think, foster my interest in the makeup effects because what I don't think I've told on this story before. And I really wish that I had just pushed this a little further, because I really like makeup. I was obsessed with that cover from Fangoria to the point where I wanted to be that zombie for Halloween. Yes. (laughs) And so we we knew a play. we we hunted and scoured my mom took me to this place that was like had theatrical makeup and we talked about what would we need to do to try to create this kind of makeup but not going so far as, you know, creating a head mold. And she like, you know, we put all the... The spirit gum and like the little gels and stuff and she made my face up to look like the most hideous looking zombie that That's was awesome. pretty close to the zombie and so i think that she, they thought you know oh well he really is into this stuff how else is he gonna get more into it yeah. unless he sees these movies um and then that just coincided with like 1981 being a banner year And I think this is what really changed everything for horror movies was that you had the emergence of – Tom Savini, I think, was already emerging. But then you had these other two key players who are featured in these 1980 uh, movies. One, the very young at the time, Rick Baker. And then his protege, the even younger, still a teenager, Rob Botin.
1: Botin, Botin. Another guy that I was into in the 80s, Kevin Yeager. And Kevin
0: Yeager, yes, who did a lot of stuff, um, I think, with ILM.
1: Yes, but he also started as a teenager.
0: Yeah, all these kids, they were big fans of monster movies and magazines, and they did these like Super 8 things on their own. And uh, so one of the films that... Is in nineteen eighty one never heard of, and is not very good because I did watch it. Is dead and buried.
1: Yeah, which I didn't watch because you told me not to.
0: Well, because I know that you know you only have so much time to see right. these movies. If I've seen it and I don't know if you're going to like it or not, if you have time, yeah, you're going to go through the whole list. But who
1: has time for thirty films? You know, I well, and, and also I was trying to watch the ones I hadn't seen before. I only rewatched one. And that's the thing is,
0: is there's a lot of films I still would like to rewatch. It'd be fun, but yeah. I kind of focused on what I hadn't seen. But this dead and buried, it kind of feels like a twilight, a long Twilight Zone movie, in that okay. uh, it's that concept. But I can tell you that Rick Baker, and I'm not sure if it was his very first job as the like say the lead makeup guy, but there's this one thing that happens in a morgue. Or, or something where like uh, a person gets, uh, they're in a the hospital, that's right, they've been attacked by like the town, the townspeople seem to be kind of possessed or something, or they seem to kill every stranger in the town. And they didn't finish the job on this poor guy. They had, like kind of like stabbed him, and they they <laughs> they they tie him up to a stake and burn him at, at this beach. But he lives somehow. <laughs> so he's all at the bandage, and you only see like his eye, right? And it's under all these bandages, and the eye right. looks all scary. Well, then someone sneaks in. They take like a a screwdriver, and they just dive it right into his eye and you see this right it's really horrific in the hospital
1: i'm wincing just uh, yeah
0: it's really shocking because normally in another you'd have to cut because you see this body and moving and you're like kind of how you did that how did they do that and it turns out that like rick baker like built this it, it, I thought it was a real person, and then they had to do like some kind of fake effect. He built a whole body and had it moving and stuff, and you didn't know it wasn't a real body. Oh, wow. That's cool. And so he does these kind of effects, and it's like, oh, this is going to be this Rick Baker to watch uh, right. for. And then, you know, this is what the fun thing was, and you kind of got me on this, is that I I learned pretty early that
1: you would probably not necessarily stick to this list and you would go off on your own side adventures. Sometimes, you know, you watch something and you think, well, I got to see more of that, whatever that was. And yeah. this, happened, this happened to me with Frank Henenlotter. Let's talk about him in a second because because um, that that's that's an
0: interesting story. And I think we're going to spend a chunk of time on Frank.
1: right?
0: <laughs> Again, we're 19, 1981. And there were three movies that year that were all in the werewolf genre, <laughs> which is weird. And oh, they, all yes. got they got big screen releases. One of them it was like at the beginning of 81. And my father wasn't yet taking me to the horror movies yet. And that was Wolven. Right. And I wanted to see Wolven, but wasn't, I don't know, my dad didn't take me to see that. So I got the chance the first time in, you know, 40 years, got to watch that. And, you know, it wasn't great. And there really isn't a lot of special effects
1: in it, but I thought it was an interesting. It's more of of like, from what, because I saw it in the 80s. It's more of like a tense thriller type thing they're going for, as opposed to out and out gore. The thing I think that makes the big difference, if you haven't seen it since
0: you were watching it in the '80s, and if you didn't see it on the big screen, it's two, three, five, right. and so it, you instead of seeing it pan and scan, you got a chance to see like these like you know nice widescreen images.
1: Right, right.
0: Of course, after seeing that, I noticed that on like Turner Classic Movies, they were going to be playing um, the Howling. Oh yeah. Which I had not seen in since I saw the drive ins, right, with my okay, family. Well,
1: wow. yeah. I
0: remember at the time thinking that the howling I wanted to see it because again, Fangoria were these right. amazing wolf effects right. that were done by the young Rob botine
1: Who in the eighties I thought of as Rob Botton. And you thought it was botten. I think it's Botine but we haven't been able to reach him to <laughs> confirm. But, so if he wants to come on the show, we can discuss how to pronounce his last name.
0: So here's the thing. That comes out in the winter of 81. And I don't remember whether I saw it at the drive-ins that summer or the, the next year in 82 as, as a part of a co-feature. At the time, didn't know who Joe Dante was. And he'd right. only made like a couple of movies. I think he's like Piranha. And this was written – this was kind of um, – you know, these are disciples of Roger Corman. Right. And the, the writer of The Howling is, well, John Sayles. Yeah. And-
1: Who <laughs> went on to have a very illustrious and prestigious independent film career, making, like, dramas and not uh, sleazy horror films.
0: Yes. <laughs> but the thing is, that The Howling, I don't have you seen The Howling? It, not since the 80s. This thing- and it, it, it not only holds up, it holds up differently is that having seen the legacy of Joe Dante, there's things I couldn't pick up on as a kid. There's all sorts of crazy, insane wolf references, werewolf movie references. <laughs> oh, that's cool. He's got characters that are named after different directors of werewolf movies. That is pretty fun. He's got all sorts of like little things in the background, like little tongue-in-cheek things. Like they're constantly like serving the dogs, like Wolf brand dog food. <laughs> and all these other, it's like really kind of slyly funny, but
1: not so much that it's just a, ho- a hoot or a howl. <laughs> well, and But you're right. That is sort of a Joe Dante trademark is that is humor. And I don't think because it's the first big movie that he had made that was getting, you
0: know, audience traction, I having not seen all the other wound movies to come, I wasn't picking up on that. And watching it this second time, it's really really good. Um now Rick Baker started pre-production working on the howling With effects that he'd been planning for a werewolf movie that he'd been in talks with John Landis for over eight years. Oh, wow. John Landis could never get the funding. However, of course, after um, Animal House and the Blues Brothers, John Landis was finally given funding for American Werewolf in London. Right. He was pissed. As all hell at Rick <laughs> Baker for working on another werewolf movie, utilizing some of the things that he was planning on doing for American Werewolf in London. He's like, you better not. <laughs> and so Rick Baker left The Howling in the hands of Rob Botine. And that's how Rob Botine got his start um, before moving on to the thing, which was way overwhelming for him, and he had a breakdown (laughs) on the thing.
1: Understandable.
0: So Rick Baker then goes and one-ups what they were doing in The Howling with American Werewolf in London, which I also rewatched, and then, of course, won the very first Academy Award for Best Makeup because it was the few minutes worth of the –
1: The transformation scene, which I remember vividly, the rest of the movie is kind of a blur in my mind. But that scene is uh, really stands out. Oh, American Werewolf in London. We just just rewatched it
0: um, over the weekend, and it's it's really good. Um, It's also it's also funny, but there's also a lot of weird, like little. I don't know idiosyncrasies that are just fascinating. It's also kind of feels like a, a a little bit of a British detective movie as well. That's another thing I've noticed in many of these films, especially the werewolf ones. Is there's this detective angle, whether it be through a reporter or an actual right. detective or a novice, always trying to. Um, you know, link together all the weird events that are
1: happening. And solve the mystery somehow. And solve yeah. the
0: mystery somehow. And, you know, sometimes it's apparent when you're watching a movie, but when you end up watching a whole slew of these at once.
1: <laughs> right. You notice that's going on a lot. <laughs> you
0: do. So, already I was kind of enjoying the journeys that uh, this particular list was taking me. But I wasn't, at the time, I wasn't going in order of year or anything. And there were... The very first one that I started watching, and I fell in love with because it was another one from '82 that I couldn't watch, like unless my dad said, "Oh, I want to see that." Was "Cue the Winged Serpent" by director Larry Cohen.
1: So, <laughs> I, for some reason—well, I not for some reason—I mean the reasons are now glaringly obvious to me. I was a big Larry Cohen fan when I worked at the video store. Like the stuff. The stuff. Island of the Alive, uh, or it's alive. It's alive. Island of the Alive was it's alive part three, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and I, as it and I, be. Wa- I watched all of them, and <laughs> uh, and Cued the Winged Serpent uh, was definitely one of my favorites, and I kind of assumed that maybe it wasn't that great when uh, you know just because oh that's something I was into as a teenager, and. Uh, but I rewatched it, and uh, it's a masterpiece.
0: <laughs> when I sat down, so it was the beginning of the month, right, when when this first came out, my wife and my youngest, who likes horror movies, but only horror movies if he can, if he can talk and make jokes and just right. have fun. Um, and sometimes, because he's only 10, his jokes don't really match up. They're not even that funny, but he just <laughs> right. loves throwing them out. And he loves responding to then us making jokes. We howled throughout this entire movie and at the end we legitimately all three of us applauded this movie it was so great uh, uh,
1: over the last shot of the egg yeah
0: and then the credits
1: well it was so good so one thing about this movie and all these movies i think uh, there's a there's a big range in terms of quality Yes, and in, in different aspects, like some have good cinematography and a bad script, or uh, you know, good music. Like they, they have, they have different positives and negatives. But the acting in "Q," Michael Moriarty, is fantastic in this movie. It is an electrifying performance that had me glued to the screen because it's so. He just is so committed to it, and it's it's kind of a fascinating character. He's like this low level criminal, and then there's this scene when he goes in, and he he's the one who knows where the serpent is, where the the winged serpent is. This is what you're going to talk about? It's the greatest scene ever when he goes in and tries to hustle the cops. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. He the lawyer and they're trying to hammer out a deal where they're going to give him He's money. Like I want a million. Were- I want a million dollars. I want total immunity for any crime I might ever commit in the future, <laughs> <laughs> or I might have committed that you don't know about. I might have committed that you don't know about. I want the rights to all the police photos. I want. I want the book rights and the film rights, and they're all like. Uh, it's such it's such an amazing scene, and they're like, "Yes, okay, we'll give you all of that if you just tell us where the, the the winged serpent's nest is."
0: I know. Well, so that's our This is what the charm of that movie is, and what I thought was interesting about kind of this entire collection. A lot of the horror movies that we see today, I guess, is that what's evolved is there's a lot of when weird things happen, people don't believe the main character. Right? almost Right, too right, late. right. But in but in a lot of these movies on this list, that's what's interesting is either the person, it, like rather than going through a whole movie where the killer is revealed, these movies reveal the killer early. It's not actually even like, uh, you know, a mystery. So it said it's more interesting and intense that, well, when will the other people kind of discover it? Because they've not made it any secret. And then in Q the winged serpent. Instead of people like, yeah, there's this big flying creature. I don't believe it, even though you should, because it's flying around. No, right. they believe that there's a winged serpent. They actually are not like thinking he's crazy. They they they, they buy into the quetzalcoatl. <laughs> the quetzalcoatl. And they even have somebody investigating, right? The whole mystic aspect
1: of it. Yes. Oh, yeah. They get into it's like, it's an Aztec god, ga- and I love when. when <laughs> There's this great part where it's right after that scene where Marty already tries to tries to hustle the cops. It's at the end of that, and Carradine is like, "Here's my file on on the Aztec god." And the the other his boss goes, "You got to bury that. I don't want to see it because." I don't want to know it's a god because it's much easier for me to kill a monster than a god.
0: And <laughs> that's the best part. All of these people, they took their job seriously. Even yes. Like behind the scenes, they're like, why am I in this crap?
1: No, they took it seriously. They did a good job. And so, you know, the special effects in Q are pretty bad. You know, it's funny because it was just a few years, I guess, five years after Star Wars. Right. <laughs> and they were not at the Star Wars level in terms of their blue screen or their stop motion. But something about the the special effects is still, it, it's funny, but it's also, and this is something that kind of happens in a lot of these movies, that where the low budget it creates this kind of seediness. Yes. And there's something that's kind of a little bit Disturbing or off putting about the seediness of it. The fact that it's low budget, there's times when I'm like, maybe I shouldn't be watching. Like, is this, you know, it's not really that it's a snuff film, but like, there's something distasteful about it and a little bit off putting. And that to me contributes to the horror of it. And in, in most modern horror films that I've seen in the last, I don't know, 20 years, say, they're really slick. Yep. And everything about them is slick. And there's something about that seediness that I find kind of attractive. And the 80s definitely had that. I think, you know, we should mention that this was sort of the last decade. Uh, I mean, it went into the early 90s too, but really it was the last decade of practical effects. In varying degrees of CGI, it all started to change it all started to change and you know basically everything after jurassic park is is digital in one way or another so there's something about those sort of cheap special effects the stop motion the weird blue screen that in and of itself is unsettling because (laughs) because it's real and but it's also there's something about it being cheap that makes it a little bit scarier to me somehow
0: when we watch these uh, and it, it does take us back to the kid in us when we – because, again, we didn't know about computer effects. I don't right. think we could, even in our minds knew that computers were going to be what – I think we always thought the robotics or the makeup would get better. Right. We weren't thinking in terms of a computer would overlay something and make it visually look like it's a real thing and actors not acting right. to something. I don't. I don't think we could have comprehended that. So when we see these things, even if you can see the wires or see how it's moving, you appreciate that there was all this work going in to this moment on the film to make it look sensational or whatnot. And again, depending on budgets, uh, the thing with the horror, how did these movies even get funded? As long as you had a story and a pitch, someone would give you money because it wasn't going to cost a lot to make and you could quickly get it out there and you could maybe make a, a, a buck or two. And the people who are financing it, they weren't looking to make $50 million. They were looking like, wow, I could make four or
1: $500,000. Right. Well, and also, I think that home video had a lot to do with this. And… The VHS market, you know, if you could get a film out there and horror kind of has a built-in audience. And I was one of those people who would watch it just because it might have some gore in it. And so you could sort of guarantee a bunch of sales just based on the genre, uh, a bunch of videotape sales. I sometimes
0: found the humor. In some of these horror movies. But I was always looking to be scared. To see if a movie could scare me. Right. And there weren't very many. that I mean there was only a couple that ever really scared me. But then there was only a few others. That I felt like even were you know, trying to scare me. And that was one thing about this list. And the titles that I went through. I found very few that were actually trying to do the job of scaring people. And if they really was their job. They were doing a horrible job. <laughs> yes. uh, I, I think that the only one. And it was funny is that I had seen most of it. It turned out I hadn't seen the whole thing. I kind of came in like a half an hour late to it before. So I rewatched the whole thing with my wife who had never seen it. I, I saw Toby Hooper's uh, 1981, The Fun House. Which I watched last night. You did? Oh, you got me with a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> you bastard.
1: I thought I was going to have to talk alone because you were like, I don't want to see this. Well, because I just couldn't accept the idea that Toby Hooper had made more than one good movie. Well, okay, so then I'm going to then ask you, what did you think? So, (laughs) again, uh, the seediness. It's yet seedy. Yep. There's something disturbing about this movie just in how seedy it is. And it's something he did in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too, where it just feels like it's kind of gross that they're even making this movie. Yeah, it's a little (laughs) grindhouse-ish. It's a little Grindhouse-ish, yeah, and I guess that's sort of what I'm getting at with the seediness is that some sometimes just the fact that they made this movie and people thought this up is kind of grotesque. But I also thought the script in Funhouse was pretty interesting because it's not what I expected. And right from the opening scene, uh, the it has sort of this shower scene. Uh, reminiscent of Psycho where the killer comes in and stabs this girl, but he doesn't stab her because it's the little brother pranking her while she's in the shower, which by the way is pretty creepy (laughs) (laughs) is very creepy. uh, But it sort of sets me up as Okay, maybe I'm not quite sure where this movie's going, right? Because it's opening killing is a prank. Oh, the other thing this movie does, and I, start, I started writing this down, is <laughs> how many minutes into the movie before we see Bare Breast?
0: Okay, but, but I, I want to have to spoil something for you. Yeah. That whole opening was a pickup they had to film it afterwards. And basically, because the producers are like, where's the breath? Where's <laughs> yeah. the nudity? So we had to, he nudity? was forced to do that scene because the actors talked about that like, oh, now I thought I got away with not having to do that. <laughs> and they, they would
1: put it in. So they wanted to get that out front, but then the rest of the movie isn't like that. No, there's no nudity in the rest of the movie at all. There's, there's almost no sexualization. I, no, actually, no, there's one other scene where... She has her shirt undone. Well, there's that really creepy scene <laughs> with the yes, with the guy in the
0: Frankenstein mask. Which, by the way, that already see that I when I came into the movie, I
1: hadn't seen the opening of how the teens got to oh, the thing because all that. And I I wrote a note about this, but the first thirty minutes, there's no plot. They no. go to the car. They go to the carnival and they kind of just wander around the carnival and like they get high. They see some creepy stuff like. They look into the nudie tent. They, there's this whole sequence with this uh, vampire magician guy, and I don't even think the main characters are in the tent for that. It's just shown to the audience. There's also the one, the Barker he's, he's playing three different roles. He's three different guys. It's like, so he's like could be t- triplets. And also there's this guy it's when they first get to the carnival, there's this guy walks past them and he looks like this bloody drunk hobo grimy character. And you're not sure, and and it's just a little bit unsettling that he's there, right? And at throughout the by the end of the movie, you realize he works for the carnival, and I don't yes. know what his job is, but he just and, and there's also the old woman who comes up and is like, "God is watching you." Yes. And but the the two of them work for the carnival, and they just kind of, and I liked this idea that they're kind of creeping people out. Uh, outside of the shows their job is to just wander around the carnival and scare people wait well that's what i thought was so great about this movie like i said when i first saw it i only
0: came came in after all that stuff had been over and the kids are like wandering around this funhouse, and that there's like creepy character in this frankenstein mask and what toby hooper does is he recognizes that carnivals are creepy
1: yes (laughs) they're filled with creepy people that work there Yes. Well, and I, you know, throughout this whole movie, I'm thinking this is so well directed, right? Like great use of widescreen. Uh, the editing really creates tension. And, and so, yeah, that first 30 minutes, there's no plot, but there's tension and creepiness out of all of the movies on the list. It's the only one that I feel like was setting out to
0: legitimately give you an uneasiness about it. And I really do doubt that it worked.
1: I told you a few weeks ago, my goal for October is to find a movie that genuinely scares me, that gets past my uh, my critical eye and gets under my skin somehow. And there were two movies that got under my skin for different reasons. But Funhouse definitely got my creeps going. And I was sort of on the edge of my seat during Funhouse in, you know, in terms of the tension. And, you know, the gore, didn't, there's not a lot of gore in it. But what I love is that, like, so I was talking about the script, is that I was expecting them to go into the funhouse and there's some creepy carnies that try to kill them just because they're there. But then they witness this murder, and there's this voyeuristic part of them sort of looking through the floor, floorboards, the cracks in the floorboards, and witnessing this murder. And we're watching them watch the murder. It's so well done. And it's really,
0: un- you're, you're, you're uneasy because you're like, are they going to get caught? What's going to happen? Yeah. It,
1: it, it's really fantastic. You know, they're sort of transgressive too, right? Like one character steals the money from the carnies and, and they're smoking pot through the whole thing. And she, she snuck out of her house. And so there's all these sorts of different, they're not just these, they're not just there to get killed. They're actually developed as characters. And the other thing is they fight back, right? And, and so, like, they actually kill the bad guys. I remember seeing you know,
0: pieces of it in Fangoria, right? Article, like, in the makeup stuff. It was not the movie that I thought it was supposed to be.
1: So you thought it was – see, I was expecting more of just, like, a
0: slasher movie. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I thought it was supposed to be until I actually saw it. <laughs> and then I was like, this is so much more interesting.
1: So, I watched this kind of back-to-back with uh, uh, Strange Behavior. Strange Behavior, which is uh,
0: 1981, directed by the guy Michael Laughlin, but it was written by… Bill Condon. Bill Condon, an Oscar-winning uh, screenwriter and also uh, a film director. Yes. He wrote Gods and Monsters.
1: He directed Gods and Monsters, I think. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, he won the Oscar for Gods and Monsters for the screenplay. Yes, that's right. And uh, I remember liking that movie. I, I hadn't thought about it much until I uh, was watching Strange Behavior.
0: But, well, think about it. this: Then you realize that this guy has liked monster movies All his life.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. No, that, that occurred to me. I was like, oh, he's in the... But strange behavior in comparison to Funhouse, I like the concept of strange behavior. There's some great stuff in it, but it doesn't have the tension for me until maybe the last 10 minutes or so. I thought the climax was fantastic, but throughout the movie, I just kept thinking, "Where is the tension? There should be tension in this scene." And you know, the uh, I, maybe it's the second killing. There's there's the opening killing in the first few minutes, uh, but then there's one where they're in the car. There's these two teenagers in this car that doesn't have doors for some reason. Yeah, that whole scene was weird. And and, and the the killer is so like awkward and incompetent which makes sense but you know in terms of the context of it but it's just not at all scary the blood isn't gross it's uh, it, it's just and so uh, I, i'm i'm actually going there i'm praising toby hooper's direction in funhouse as compared to strange behavior where i feel like the way it's shot and the editing didn't give it as much tension as it could have had
0: Well, the Funhouse is what Spielberg, between that and Texas Chainsaw, Funhouse is what sold the producers on letting him direct Poltergeist.
1: Yeah, and then I don't know what happened there. Did he have a drug problem or something? Well, the, I mean, look, I don't know. Totally, there was always rumors that he had a c-
0: cocaine problem throughout the uh, 80s. Um, the Poltergeist, I mean, it, you know what? I think we all want to believe that it's Spielberg's movie. I mean, he wrote it. He was, he was no matter whether he co-directed it, ghost-directed it, he was yeah. definitely involved.
1: But there are trademarks of what Hooper does Now that you see the Funhouse. Now that I've seen Funhouse, I I see where that comes from. He actually knows what he's doing. And maybe he, uh, who knows what happened to him. He still kept making movies into the 2000s. I mean, I liked Life Force. I don't care. I I haven't seen it since the 80s. I remember enjoying it. From what I understand, it's pretty incoherent. I got to see a 70
0: millimeter print of it a few years back at the Somerville and they cranked the sound up way up, and man, it was just a fun hoot. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I would buy that it's a fun hoot. But Strange Behavior, I think sometimes some of these movies, right, they suffer because they're super low budget, and yeah. so they can't do everything that they may have. They, their brains might have had a vision, and they can't make it work. But one of the things that I I knew going into these 80s movies was that I might walk away with a moment or two from these movies that I enjoyed. So there were some things that I'm more on a humorous level. I liked, I did like that the killer, not enough, always, I can't, I'm already forgetting the movie, but they were wearing a Tor Johnson mask. Yeah. Well, there's more than one killer. Yeah, all right. I would yeah, spoiler alert for those. Yeah, but the Tor Johnson. Yeah, the the math, spoiler it,
1: alert on the whole episode. We're just giving stuff away because some of these movies you can't really talk about without giving this stuff away.
0: Like in strange behavior, they're all like what, supposed to be high school and
1: college uh, yeah. type kids, but they all look like they're all like 30 years old. Right. But no, they're seniors in high school. Cause it's all about, are they going to this college next year? And it's the college that is doing the strange experiments, the, evil uh, the experiment. science gone wrong. Yeah. They, <laughs> and it's a great twist, man. I, I I'm giving away the end of the movie, but my favorite mo- moment in the movie is kill him, kill your father. And then he stabs that guy and he goes, don't kill me, kill your father. And he goes, you are my father, and stabs him. <laughs> I know, it's so great. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic.
0: But you see, one of the things I realized as I watch more and more of these is that the, the person who curated this for Criterion clearly picked some uh, like movies that have like relationships. So, there are definitely some tie-ins between Strange Behavior and the Dead and Buried movie.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: My favorite scene, and it really isn't a horror at all, but it's this one party that you talked about where the killer goes at the attacks the people in the car.
1: Oh, and it's a great party
0: scene. Yeah. But for some reason, they're all getting down and almost line dancing to a nineteen sixties Lou Christie hit, Lightning Strikes. <laughs> yes. And it was written because uh Bill Condon loved that song. And so they wrote this scene where they're all dancing and there's just something about the energy. Yeah. In that scene, that made me say
1: something's going on here in this movie, and I kind of dig it. <laughs> yeah, and and they're like, it, it's such a weird party because they don't really even really establish whether it's Halloween or not. They're just like, we're going to a party, and then it turns out to be a costume party. Yes, I <laughs> you know. And they're also all drinking beer, and I thought, you know. They smoke cigarettes, they drink beer, they smoke pot in these movies, and they're doing stuff that there's another sort of overall take on these 80 movies, 80s movies, is that things are more conservative now. Even though everyone says it's more extreme now, it actually, I feel like the 80s were stretching some boundaries in some interesting ways. I wholeheartedly agree with you, sir. Now, I want to take a little side
0: trip into some of the new movies that are out that I feel like have been inspired by the 80s in many ways. Yeah. They have a a direct connection, a pipeline into the 80s. But I want to start with a director that we've actually had on the show before, this guy. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Joel Petroikis. Yes. His movies, by the way, are on Criterion uh, Channel, but they're leaving at the end of the month. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, I just found that out. So people should uh, take a look. But there's one thing that he debuted on the Criterion Channel. He – um, shot a short, like 20 minute. 26 minutes. 26 minutes movie. It's a short <laughs> called What?
1: The Thing in the Field by the
0: Factory or
1: something like that.
0: Yes. I knew nothing about it, obviously.
1: I knew nothing about it either. I, and I refused to tell you about it. <laughs> I wanted you to be surprised. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for it. Well, and this was another thing I kept sort of thinking about in terms of all these movies we watched was. And we were just talking about Funhouse uh, shooting uh, that that pickup on the opening scene. Is the movies that have the slow burn versus the hit the ground running? And some of these movies have a long slow burn, and some of them are just nonstop right from the beginning. And so this is a, uh, this Joel Petroikis short is a slow burn. It's it's either like
0: early '90s or late '80s. It set in. Yeah. One of the things he does is he shoots with some kind of the camera he shoots with. It's like a video format that like feels like it's like not beta max, but beta tape or something. Yeah. It looks like something where if kids were making like college kids were making something in the late 80s, they might have shot it on this.
1: Mm -hmm. And there's something about his framing too, which I think is brilliant, but it frustrates me. Why does it frustrate you? Because I'm like, just show us a little bit more.
0: <laughs> oh, see, I loved that because I was
1: no, like, I, I said I think it's brilliant, but, but, by frustrated I mean it creates tension for me. Yeah,
0: that's what was very fat. This whole exercise is very tension filled.
1: Yes, and a lot of it is because of how he shoots and cuts things. You know the the scene where they're there with the crossbow. Yes, there's a lot of sort of medium close-ups going back and forth. And, and and then there's a shot of them on opposite sides of the frame. But you think they're a lot closer than they are before you get that wide shot. And so by keeping things, those tight angles, he he's creating tension. And then suddenly there's that wide shot. And the wide shot almost makes it scarier because it's like, and and you think they're going to shoot her right um, and then there's even tension when the crossbow gets shut up in the air <laughs> there's a huge amount of tension and you know I, I remember talking to Petroikas about this when he was like oh this is just stuff you know like drinking the gallon of milk he's like this is just stuff we did in high school and I had this experience with this kid Dale Drown who I was over at his house one day after school in eighth grade actually and he had a compound bow and he shot it straight up in the air that's crazy and I freaked out. And I remember him telling me, just don't move. Don't don't move. Stay right here. It won't come down where we're standing. And I, yeah, I freaked out. Uh, and so this, uh, this definitely brought back that memory. I encourage people, and I don't know if this
0: one is, if this short's leaving at the end of the month or not, but please go out and watch this thing. I feel like it has
1: a killer ending. I think it might stay uh, because Criterion is in the credits. That's why I didn't see it on the leaving this month. Um, yeah. Did you like it?
0: Yes. The other thing that makes it really work is, I don't know whether these were students, because he also teaches in, in, in a school in Michigan, right? Uh, yeah. The college. The, the kids in this movie are amazing, and they look like whatever – if it was late 80s, early 90s, yeah. they look so authentic that it's incredible to me.
1: Yeah, and that's the other thing is that the acting is great in this. And th- some of these movies are kind of all over the place with the acting. Uh, you know, there were uh, – like the the lead characters in, uh, in Strange Behavior were actually pretty good, but some of the side characters were terrible. Yeah. But, I mean, that's also what we sort of love about those horror movies. Because- well, th- that goes to that seediness aspect, which is it, there's something grindhouse about it. And that is uh, that that can be a little bit disturbing. Because I'm saying chances are, though, we're never going to see a lot of those people ever again in a movie. <laughs> you <know? That's> what- <laughs> well, I looked a few of them up here and there, and uh, they, they did not have a lot of credits. so okay the i don't know if you finished watching this but the other movie i'm going to bring up is tetsuo the iron man oh i finished it (laughs) i'll never forgive you i mean i'll never forget it um yeah i don't know if i can forgive myself this is a movie i have to say this right off the bat i don't recommend this movie to anyone and i never would because i don't want to wish this on anyone
0: I would say that out of the entire list, even a few, the couple of movies on that list that I've never seen, uh, and we're really down out of that 30, I'm down to like maybe two movies I, of, that, of that group yeah. that I haven't seen. Uh, there's like two other movies that I haven't quite finished yet, but there's nothing quite like Tetsuo, The Iron Man. I mean, it's probably the most bizarre movie that I can recall seeing since maybe um, Eraserhead, yet
1: Eraserhead yeah. is way more coherent <laughs> Yes. And this is incoherent. It is out there. It is twisted. It is disgusting. I had to turn it off after five minutes because that opening scene where he cuts his leg open, I could not take. Uh, It it was (laughs) the birth of (laughs) biomech. And now I know it can be traced back to the Iron
0: Man. Yes.
1: Well, and this is like a David Cronenberg. This is like being in a waking nightmare of a a David Cronenberg scene that stretched on for an hour and six minutes, because this movie hits the ground running and does not let up. There's no quiet moments. There's no, (laughs) there's really no character development. It is just nonstop. Uh, I mean, it is it's just like being inside a nightmare of body horror machines, sex, gore, kind of all mixed together in the most uh, disturbing way. And there's this like it's not stop motion. It's kind of stop motion, but, you know, where they're running around the city and it's just like following the character. And it's just this really jittery kind of motion. And that is disturbing. Yeah. So this movie is almost unwatchable. Thankfully, it's only an hour and six minutes. I don't know if I could have taken much more. Uh, But this movie, I will not forget, and it did get under my skin.
0: Yeah, in in the the only way that a biomechanical can. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so look, people, as always, you know, not knowing where these things are going to go, we really don't have a ton of time. So we're going to. Just finish off, and and again, I, I now I realize that the next episode we're going to do is going to probably have to involve more horror, whether or not <laughs> it uh, is, <laughs> whether or not it comes out before Halloween or not. It's just that there's a lot more things to say about the movies that we experienced on the list. One of which we haven't really covered is the fact that there are some that I really personally, after watching them, do not. I do not count them as horror movies, and I don't road think games. That they road games the vanishing um white of the eye they're they're like thrillers or even the fan which i just saw and i was actually shocked at how amazing it is i don't know if i consider those horror movies so that's another genre going on
1: well and just uh, i i need to get this into the show about road games just because tarantino loves a movie doesn't mean it's good (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what they say, the good ones borrow, the great ones steal. You took that from me because that was my reaction to watching Rogue Games is that I know that uh, Tarantino was a big fan of it. And uh, having watched it, I mean, I'm not saying I don't know why, but I just didn't see what the, the fuss was about. But here we go. <sighs> when I was a kid, <laughs> there was a movie that I would see being advertised for midnight screenings. And it had a cool-looking little poster in the paper, and it looked scary. This thing yeah. called Basket Case. Yeah. Um, and I was desperate to see it. So, this was one of the things I was so happy about with the, the coming of the VHS. That was one of the earliest yes. horror movies I couldn't wait to rent Basket Case. My friend Bobby Otis and I got together to watch this Basket Case, and our jaws dropped because we thought it was terrible. <laughs> we didn't. We just thought it was like goofy and bad special effects, and that's just kind of the mindset of fourteen we were. That right? Why was this movie? We thought it was supposed to be a scary as all hell horror movie. We just didn't understand what that was all about. And I had vowed that I would rewatch it as part of this experiment, and I haven't had a chance yet. But I was curious to check out this movie called Brain Damage that was also directed by the same guy, Frank Hennenlotter. And it was in 1988. And I felt like I would have recalled this if it had been released in theaters. I knew nothing about a movie called Brain Damage, so I had to
1: watch it. And. I was aware of it, but I didn't watch it because I just kind of was moving out of my horror thing and I was kind of like, ah, it's just some, and, and I didn't re- really connect it to basket case. And so I, I don't know. I just didn't watch it, but I watched it this time.
0: But back then we wouldn't have necessarily like, unless it was like, you know, Cronenberg or one of the biggies, right. you didn't remember the director's name. Yeah. So I watched this brain damage with my wife. We didn't watch it with our youngest, uh, kind of thankfully, because <laughs> there's some <laughs> things. And I mean, this, this movie, like, shocked me in just how outrageous and kind of hilarious and how bizarre and sort of how one man's vision to make a film it, it, it just, I don't know, it, it hit all the right boxes for me and I insisted that you had to make sure you saw this.
1: And I think you're right about the one man's vision thing because the movie has voice, right? It's not its not a generic movie by any stretch of the imagination. it It takes real creativity and vision and commitment to come up with and execute something on this level of gonzo absurdity. And gore, and I mean, just and and you know, I mean, the whole thing is kind of a an addiction narrative. Well, you know the backstory, right? No. Oh, you don't. So apparently, this movie is an
0: allegory about addiction because Frank Henenlotter had beaten a pretty bad cocaine addiction, and he uh. wanted to channel that feeling of not being able to get away from the drug but into like a horror story about a guy who gets like connected into that thrill of injecting into your brain this like you know powerful aphrodisiac and then not being able to separate it um which is really where you get that whole thing where the guy's trying to uh
1: separate himself from that kind of creature (laughs) Yes, and the the Almer and when the old people that are addicted to it, they're creepy. And, and this is a movie that hits the ground running. That opening scene with them losing the Almer and freaking out and trashing their apartment is fantastic.
0: But you don't and you think it's like these weird, bad actors. You don't know what the hell's going on. And it really, that was so interesting. You're hooked into this movie, but it throws stuff at you that you're not quite sure what what's happening here.
1: Yes, and and they have a dish full of brains that they're taking to the bathtub. (laughs) Yeah, it's so bizarre. And of course, it all eventually makes sense, but he doesn't give that away right away also all the stuff with the guy getting hooked and the relationship he's in with this woman. And then there's this crazy scene where she has sex with his brother and he's in the other room listening to them yes. and doesn't do anything and is fine with it because he's so addicted to the drugs and like that's taken over all of his emotions and, and personal relationships and jealousy and everything has been consumed by this addiction.
0: You know, and when you first find out what this thing is, this this like, you know, I don't know, this puppety <laughs> creature pops up behind the guy and goes and and suddenly talks and goes, Hi Brian. <laughs>
1: I'm Alma. <laughs> right. it, it has such a great voice and <laughs> its mouth moves and sometimes it's stop motion and sometimes it's a puppet. And but it's such a it's such a fascinating character because it's so much smarter than everyone else in the movie. <laughs> and, and then he's like, "Juice me up." Yes.
0: <laughs> like when when that when that character reveals himself and he's like, "Hey, Brian," <laughs> and he starts to talk, the way he talks to him, I, I was hooked in this movie, yeah. and I just like I loved it so because. It reminded me of like my childhood that if I had if I had seen this film at the
1: right time I just would have loved it. Me too. I would have absolutely loved. Well, and also this is I was going through all these movies and when I got to this one, uh, you know I I I, I take little notes when I'm watching movies now, and uh, I I just wrote down this is a masterpiece (laughs) because I really think. You know, again, this is really an acquired taste, this kind of movie, because you have to be able to put up with, like, some pretty weak acting at times. The main character starts off, his acting isn't that great, but by the end of it, I was like, this guy's giving an amazing performance. Wait, so I'm going
0: to ask you a question, because I think maybe this will be your homework for the next assignment. (laughs) You have not had a chance yet to see Frankenhooker, correct? No, but I did see Bad Biology. So I have not seen Bad Biology. You haven't seen Frankenhooker. I. Just found Franken. Now that I'm kind of tapped into the vibe that Frank Waters putting out, <laughs> yes. Frankenhooker was a movie that he had with like a bigger budget. I think that right. where it suffered was that we were hitting 1990 and the glory days of these types of movies were over, whether they yes. knew it or not. But this Frankenhooker movie is just... I know there's got to be a rabid fan base out for this film, but it has that same thing that you just mentioned. Like there's a performance. The lead guy... He is giving an acting performance that is so singular. It's like his own <laughs> thing throughout the whole thing. I can't even describe it. You have to see the movie to know what I'm talking about that it's like a piece of genius acting. Is it it's almost like he knows, "Oh, this is like a spoof, and this is right. my chance, and I can't really act too
1: good." I get right, to do because, this. because there's there's something it goes along with that seediness and that distastefulness and there. I mean, there's something like I, I, I do you know what bad biology is about? No. OK, I'm not going to tell you anything other than uh, it's seedy and it's offensive and it's gross and it is despicable and tasteless. And there's a line. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's a line in the movie where a character is commenting on something else in the movie and they say, this is not clever. This is not intelligent. This is not art. This is just pure gutter level filth. And I thought (laughs) that, (laughs) that describes this movie bad biology perfectly. Uh, (laughs) And, but but I loved it. And, you know, so I I went to see what kind of ratings it had on Metacritic. Doesn't exist on Metacritic. Okay. Looked on Rotten Tomatoes. Zero reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Went to IMDb. There's user reviews. It either has a one or two out of 10 or a 10 out of 10.
0: He's a love or hate it kind
1: of guy. <laughs> He's a love or hate kind of guy. And I've decided that I love him. And I don't, I was watching this movie, Bad Biology, and I thought, I don't want anyone to know that I love this movie because they will think less of me. We can love these types of movies in our, in its own category, but we can also really get into John Luke Godard movies. Exactly. And I was thinking about that the whole time. I was like, There's, these these couldn't be more opposite, you know, <laughs> except they're both, I think, commenting on the audience. You know, I think that's what Han and Water and Godard have in common is that they are Somehow commenting on the audience and what experience you're having in watching it, because uh, there's a whole voyeuristic aspect to Bad Biology that I think. And anytime you have that, like in Fun House, I think you're commenting on the audience a little bit through this voyeurism.
0: In this Bad Biology, are there any callbacks to Basket Case? Here's why <laughs> I say that because there is a callback yes, in there brain damage, and there is a funny, funny little callback in Frankenhooker.
1: Yeah. there. If there is, I didn't pick up on it immediately. And this movie came out in 2009. It was his first movie in 16 years. And some of the reviews on on IMDb are like, this movie is terrible because it has practical effects. What? And now everything should be digital. There's no excuse for this kind of lame stop motion uh, <laughs> in, in a movie these days. And but this movie, I mean, it was. <laughs> I gotta tell you the backstory on this a little bit. There, there's this rapper named R. A. Rugged Man, okay. who wanted, who wanted to make a music video, and he wanted uh, Frank Henenlotter to direct the music video because he was a fan of Frank and Hooker and Basket Case and and uh brain damage brain damage and so he want and so he, he hired frank Henenlotter to make this music video and then somehow that fell through and so this guy goes well let's just make a movie right <laughs> <laughs> and so he put up the money for it. he co-wrote the script with Henenlotter. he put up the money for it all his friends are in it his girlfriend is the lead actress they found the lead actor on myspace uh, there's no, they have zero cash, and they just went all in on this thing, making it as extreme and outrageous and absurd and seedy as possible. And if you do watch this, you have to stay through the end credits because okay. Ra Ra Rugged Man does a rap over the end credits called so you want to make a movie and it's all about the production of the movie. It's about how Hen and water had cancer while they're shooting it, how that he didn't have any money. So he fed the crew donuts and white castle and like he, this is going to end his career because the movie's so distasteful. Uh, so anyhow, it's, <laughs> it's, I, I can't recommend this movie to anyone, but <laughs> But you, because oh, okay. I can't. I <laughs> couldn't even. I, I couldn't even tell you. I tried to tell my wife about this movie, and I was embarrassed to tell her the concept. <laughs> well, I can tell you that um Frank and Hooker. I recommend
0: anybody who wants a bit of a laugh. It, yeah, it's distasteful and it's totally ridiculous, but this is something so funny. I mean, and and then the person who. Like, she's killed in, like, the opening five minutes, but then right. she comes back, of course, when he puts her to back together and she's the Frankenhooker. She is amazing. Her acting abilities, when she just uh, – she makes these facial twitches and just is
1: like, hey, want a date? Well, and I remember when Frankenhooker came out, and and I think it was on the poster. I can't uh, – it, it was on, on the, the p- box of the VHS that if you pressed the button, it would say, want a date? <laughs> No, no, no! There was a Bill Murray
0: quote. Oh, so there's a story behind that where um, the uh, now now disgraced Bill Murray, by the way, he liked Hen and like movies, and somehow. Somebody got him to say it was really good, and then Frank Henenlotter was really embarrassed by it, and then Bill Murray said, no, it's fine, and gave a quote that says it's the film you must see or something. Yeah,
1: if you only see one film this year, it, it must be Frankenhooker or something yeah. like that. No, Frankenhooker,
0: again, that's 1990s. We kind of like went off a year there, but I just, I I, I enjoyed brain damage so much that I took the Frankenhooker
1: challenge. Well, and that's why I jumped into bad biology because I just, you know, I started researching him and, and so he has, he made, he's made a couple of documentaries too. Yeah. One of them, I feel like has given me new context for Pearl. Okay, we'll save that for next time because now we really do have to go. But we've now
0: also realized that we just can't leave the horror to just this episode. We're going to no, have to we come have, back.
1: We, we're coming back for for horror part two. Yeah, because uh, we
0: have more things that we want to say about some of the films that were on this list. And we really do want to talk about Pearl a bit. Um, I want to tell you how much I loathed and hated The monsters. one of the worst movies of all time. Yes. I want to just say a few things about the Hellraiser reboot, which I enjoyed. And of course the movie that probably every other movie podcast is talking about except us is Halloween ends. It, does it ends and uh i did see it and uh we could talk about that and this really creepy lead character guy that they got to be this guy Corey, um and he is so yucky and unlikable that it that it's a mystery to me why he was cast
1: (laughs) interesting yeah and also you know it's been kind of a good fall at the box office for horror movies and i almost don't consider pearl a horror movie because apparently that's why it didn't do well (laughs) yeah but the smile and and this barbarian did really well. Yeah, I just, I
0: mean, again, it shows you when you have the backing of some budget because Pearl, right? That's the movie that in 10 years, all the people about horror, it's going to be part of the staple. People are yes. going to find it, uh, uh you know, at, at home, like streaming and stuff. And yet these other movies, Smiles, the one that they're going to make Smile 10.
1: <laughs> right, yes, they definitely… Yeah, they definitely will. So, before the next episode, you need to watch Frank Hennenwater's documentary. That's Sexploitation. Okay, so I need to watch
0: that, and I need to watch Bad Biology. I am telling you that you got to check this movie, The Fan, out. Yes, um, I mean, is be. it like it's got you know it's got its problems, but it it it, it like it's you know we talked about that the only one that actually put me on the edge the finale of that movie really is intense.
1: Okay, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and we didn't even talk about the keep. There's all sorts of things, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, so there's lots of goodies uh, to still explore on a, uh, another episode coming soon of Stuff We've Seen. So goodbye from Jimmy Karloff and Teelzebob. Bye-bye. I'm glad I didn't do that voice for the whole episode. I think I did that two years ago when we did the uh, 70s horror. I stayed in character the whole time. (laughs) It was too much.
1: All right. Bye. Bye.